Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego Ani Buju. And I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. It's also about asserting living and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Today's Warrior Life podcast is brought to you by special request of several listeners. They've asked that I share the audio from my online lecture that I did for Scholar Strike Canada that happened back in September. Our original event was done to draw attention to ongoing police racism, violence, brutality, sexual assaults, and killings of Black and Indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States. Although most of the protests have ceased, our solidarity work behind the scenes to defund the police has stayed strong. Min Suk Lee from OCAD hosted this particular event and Beverly Bain from UFT moderated it. The original video event can be found on both Scholar Strike Canada's YouTube channel and my YouTube channel. And although I've talked about this issue many times before, both on this podcast and on my YouTube channel and at other public events, it doesn't hurt to have a little reminder that we're still very much dealing with ongoing police racism and violence. And so this podcast will be just a little reminder that we still have lots of work to do to hold both the police and governments accountable. So here's the full unedited version. Uh, Welcome everybody to uh, the beginning of our day and this morning, um, uh, our second day of of the Scholars uh, Strike Canada. And we will begin with um, today's uh, presentation on legacy of policing indigenous lands and bodies. I wanna start with our land acknowledgement. This land and this space we are meeting in is the traditional territory of, the, of many nations, including the Mississaugas, of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. This area is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. The Dish with One Spoon Treaty is between the Anishinaab, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent Indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans and all newcomers, have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship and respect. Um, I'll turn it over to Min Suk just to uh, tell you a little bit about today and then we'll uh, go to our speaker after. Welcome to day two of Scholar Strike Canada. We had an extraordinary day yesterday, 30,000 views on our digital teachings that are um, public and that, um, you know, we're talking about so many of the critical issues of our times. We want to thank all the panelists who participated. And um, of course, we're really excited about today's lineup. Um, after Dr. Pam Pamela's talk, we have Bonita Lawrence, Andrea Davis, Eve Tuck, Megan Scribe, Ronaldo Walcott, um, and we also have uh, an extraordinary talk at the end of today with Bev Baines and Ida Abdullahi and Rosalind Hampton. So tune in for all of that as well. There have been solidarity screenings and teachings that have um, come up throughout the country. So there's one at McGill that is happening this afternoon. And uh, Professor Alyssa Trotz is going to be streaming a uh, talk at 2 p.m. from UT Caribbean Studies. So lots of action. Check out our website, scholarstrikecanada.ca for uh, the latest info and all the links. Thank you, Minister. Welcome, Dr. Pam Palmetter, 
who is a Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, author, and social justice activist from El Riverbar First Nations in New Brunswick. Pam is the author of uh, Indigenous Nationhood, Empowerment, Grass Citizens, and Beyond Blood, Rethinking Indigenous Identity, and many more uh, uh, written um, articles and, and, and scholarship. Um, she was a spokesperson for uh, the Idle No More movement. Her current research focuses on police racism, abuse, and sexualized violence against Indigenous women and girls, and its contribution to the crisis of murdered, missing, treated, and exploited Indigenous women and girls. Uh, Dr. Palmati currently holds the position of full professor and chair in Indigenous governance at Ryerson University. Welcome, Dr. Palmati. Thank you so much. I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation on unceded Mi'kma'ki territory at Eel River Bar First Nation. But today I'm speaking to you from sovereign Mississaugas of Scugog territory this morning, lands that have never been uh, given back to the Mississaugas, lands which are rightfully owed the Mississaugas. And I think it's important to remember uh, for everybody that uh, you know, although I'm a Mi'kmaq person, I'm here on Mississauga territory. And so I don't speak for the Mississauga, but we share many of the same uh, concerns. And thank you to everybody who is participating in this scholar strike, which I see in Canada and the US and worldwide. And whether you're participating for the full two days or just one day, um, or even just in spirit in, the, in your teaching and advocacy, that is so important. It is absolutely critical that we keep this people's movement going and growing. We must always remember that in any country that claims to be a democracy, that the real power is with the people. We have been taught not to exercise our power, to limit our voices, to just voting once every four years in elections. But to only do that is an abdication of both our powers and our responsibilities to the people. Because when you have a power, you always have a corresponding responsibility with it. And now is literally the time to take back that power and force the changes that we need to ensure social justice and earth justice all over Turtle Island, because we know at this point in time that no matter who you elect, what political party, what government says it's going to do and what it isn't going to do, nothing is changing. Everything is being firmly cemented in the status quo. And for many black and indigenous peoples, things are getting worse not better. And that's in 2020. And the only people who can make that change are the people. Another terrible thing that we've been taught is that we must avoid conflict at all costs, that good citizens go along to get along. And that's how gross injustices have been allowed to continue literally right before our eyes, on TV screens, on social media, literally outside our front doors. Canada and the US have literally policed our minds and our voices just as much as they have policed our lands and our bodies. And we have been taught from education to you know, communities to messages on TV that conflict and disruption is bad, that marching in the streets is violence, and that advocating with angry voices or with teary eyes is dangerous hysteria. But they are wrong. They have always been wrong. 
If we can't get angry over continued police brutality, sexual assaults and killings of our black and indigenous brothers and sisters, then who will? If we can't cry for our own people and be that safe space that they need us to be, then who will? So no, we are not going to calm down, not in this scholar strike, not in Idle No More, not in Black Lives Matter, not in any of these people's movements who are historically coalescing and coming together to protect one another. And no, we are not going to soften the message. We are not going to make it palatable for people because that would be a gross dishonor to all of our loved ones, our families, our communities, and members of our nations who have been wrongfully taken from us and who have fought for so much better for us and our future generations. We have literally, we like literally right now in this very moment, we are in the fight of our lives. Literally, we are fighting for our lives and we cannot miss a minute of this opportunity, of this growing people's movement to educate for action. And that's where we're going to make this shift. Instead of just learning, instead of just reading, instead of just watching, everything you learn, you are now committed to take action on it. And I am so incredibly honored to be a part of this teaching because while we have many friends, colleagues, and allies joining us, we also have so many people tuning in for the first time, wanting to know more so they can do more. And that's a kind of energy that we have to grab onto and run with. So if this is your first time here, I have some bad news about Canada. Everything you have taught is wrong. And some of my talk here today is going to be disturbing, uncomfortable and even unsettling, but you're gonna learn that it's been a lot worse for indigenous peoples and black peoples. Why? Because generally society has been taught that people like the police are our heroes. They are there to keep us safe. And they're the first people that we are supposed to call if we get into trouble. We are also taught that the police represent the highest of society's morals, values, and ethics because they are the enforcers of the laws, laws that are there, laws that are uh, supposed to be designed to protect us. In fact, there's even a special law in the Canada Canadian Criminal Code that makes it a unique offense to assault a police officer, a peace officer. And that's because they have been held up as heroes. We also feel really uncomfortable talking about all of this, about police racism and corruption and violence and sexual assaults and the exploitation of children because we know, we know when we look around that that might be your parent. It might be your family member, it might be your uncle, it might be your neighbor. Everybody knows someone who is a police officer or a corrections officer or a law enforcement official of some kind. In some families, they have many generations of police officers. 
So we don't want to look around at other people. Our natural inclination and how we've been taught is to focus on bad apples. Well, there's a bad apple in every bunch. There's a there's bound to be one or two bad guys in police, one or two bad guys in healthcare, one or two bad guys in society. But no, we are not talking about sociopathic serial killers. We are talking about everyday police officers in society. And we are also talking about systemic racism, but not in the sense of absolving individuals of their culpability. And that's part of the problem. As soon as we mention systemic racism, governments say, well, you know what? It's a piece of paper. It's the Indian Act. It's a law that we need to change. It's a system. It's a policy. As if these inanimate objects are the ones that are killing and brutalizing and incarcerating our people. And it's not. It's people doing that. And it's administrations and its governments and its organizations and its leaders that are making the decisions to allow their people to do these things. And I'm not talking about a few bad apples in this talk at all. Not. I wish, I wish the myth of a few bad apples was true because then we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't all be mourning the loss of our brothers and sisters. We wouldn't have to spend so much time, energy, and effort in consoling our communities and marching in the streets to demand for justice. We could go about doing the things we all want to do. For Native people, it's getting our land back and, you know, uh, building our self-determining nations. And for Black communities, there's a whole bunch of things that we want to be doing that's positive, that, that is that is helpful, that's, that contributes to social justice and earth justice. Instead, we are forced to consistently resist and confront and disrupt and try to change the grave human rights violations that are being committed against our people. And if police anti-racism, corruption, brutality, sexualized violence and killings was merely a matter of a few bad apples, we wouldn't have had endless public inquiries and commissions, uh, coroner's reports and other investigations into what is going on. And if police forces all over Canada and the United States weren't engaging in what I would consider literally months of riots. I mean, what we've seen on TV isn't violence from protesters and marchers and people engaged in teach-ins. What we've seen is outright riots from police forces desperate to maintain their power, their unaccountable power over our people. And that has got to stop. And while it's true that anti-Indigenous or anti-Black racism can be found in all of Canada's institutions, I mean, it's like deeply ingrained in our laws, policies, and practices. It manifests very specifically at highly toxic levels in male-dominated enforcement institutions like policing, corrections, and the military in very violent and brutal ways and in ways where they haven't been held accountable. And we will never, ever see a future without this kind of police racism, brutality, and corruption until we confront it head on and take the radical steps that are needed to eliminate the threat, to eliminate the problem, to eliminate these organizations that are killing our people and not contributing to society.
because another you know, really difficult message is that what we've been doing hasn't worked. So for all of the recommendations that we've tried to implement, for all the tinkering around the edges that we've done, it's not working. So it makes no sense to keep doing those things. Cultural awareness training for police officers, diversity hires, none of those things have stopped police killings because the problem isn't our skin color. The problem isn't our culture. We've never had a problem. This isn't about a clash of cultures. This is about police culture. This is about state culture, which is based on white supremacy, which privileges white people and white systems and white ideologies and white histories and correspondingly punishes, oppresses, dispossesses, excludes and brutalize those who don't fit that category, which we know here in Canada, Black and Indigenous peoples being the number one targets and also other racialized people or other people who've been othered in some way. And we have seen this many times before. We have seen protests after police brutalization. We've seen them after wrongful death, but literally very little changes because governments and society waits for a coroner's report. They wait for an investigation. They wait for a recommendation from whatever municipal council. And every day that we wait, other people are dying. And, and this isn't an anomaly. So it's not like we're talking about a system that was designed to protect people. And then somehow, somewhere along the way, it got corrupted. And now if we just do a couple of tweaks, we're going to be able to fix it. No, that's not the case at all. We're talking about a policing system in Canada and the United States that was designed to do exactly what it is doing. And that is a white, male, racist, violent set of police forces who is built under a concept of white supremacy with all of the inherent racism that goes with it, trained to respond to problems with lethal violence and mandated to remove people, remove people that cause problems, remove people from the lands. So in the very early days, you're talking about removing indigenous peoples from their lands, controlling the territories, and for black people, controlling the movements of slaves. So any institutions that started out with that as a mandate, with that as an ideology, it should be no surprise that they are still doing the same things today. And so we have a very long history and I wanted to talk a little bit about that history because if you just use the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP as an example, they literally took a lead role. They were genocides enforcers here on this territory. And that might sound harsh, but I invite you to read the National Inquiry into murder to missing Indigenous women and girls that found Canada categorically and without doubt or reservation guilty of historic and ongoing genocide against Indigenous peoples as a matter of law, policy, practice, actions, and omissions. And the key here is that it continues today unabated, unaddressed. They moved on as if no one had said a word. But if this was happening in any other country, in some other place, to some other people, 
then Canada, of course, would be on the world stage condemning that genocide, rightfully so, and taking actions to stop it. But what actions are Canada doing to stop it? And this is where policing comes from. They are the enforcer of Canada's genocidal policy and have been involved in the forced removal of Indigenous peoples from our lands. They were involved in the forced removal of our children put into residential schools where many of them died. They knowingly and illegally prevented Native peoples from leaving reserves knowing that it was in breach of our treaties but they did it anyway. They prevented Indigenous peoples from engaging in traditional economies like hunting, fishing, gathering, and trade, which we've always done, which were also protected in our treaties. And some people might say, Pam, but that's history. Yeah, that's a part of our history that's not taught, but it's also part of the present. Who do you think enforces and operates in the same way today? Of course the RCMP does. They police our traditional economic activities like gaming and tobacco and treat us as though we are gangsters and criminals if we engage in it. They've literally criminalized it in the criminal code. And they also the number one support to other enforcement agencies like fisheries and oceans to de deny us our rights, our Aboriginal and treaty rights and inherent rights to fish and support ourselves from fishing and make a living from fishing, just for example. They also collaborate with CSIS and Indigenous Affairs to engage in racially targeted and unconstitutional surveillance of Native peoples around our communications, our gatherings, our protests, our teachings, the things we say, the things we do, who we text, who we don't text, on a wide scale. And then to make matters worse, they have made us not only into an enemy of the state, but they've also made us into an enemy of society and an enemy of corporations and an enemy of business because they share all of this intelligence with the extractive industry, again, in violation of our privacy rights and makes us even bigger targets. You don't see any of this coming back to us. You don't see any RCMP intelligence coming to Native peoples about the extractive industry about, hey, you know, you need to look out for these man camps. They're engaged in human trafficking and sexual exploitation of children and women, and there's higher rates of uh, abuse and murders around man camps. And here's who to look out for. And here's some of the perps. You would think that would be the case if the RCMP were set up to protect all peoples, but they're not. They're only set up to protect specific institutions. And so the RCMP are the first ones to show up literally with tanks and helicopters and explosive devices and heavily armed SWAT teams to remove peaceful native people from our lands, often elders, women and children. But they will never come to our aid to help protect us our lands. And that's why we have murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls that go uninvestigated, that, you know, serial killers can kill for years without any aid from the RCMP. They can literally destroy our lands, despite the fact that we have a treaty, you know, protecting our lands. And on top of that, on top of all of that, they're also responsible for the over-arrests and police shootings of Indigenous peoples and the violent sexual assaults of Indigenous women and girls. And some of you might actually be surprised to hear this, 
But the RCMP are well known, well known for sexually assaulting, harassing Indigenous women and girls all over Canada. And not just the RCMP, other police forces, corrections officials, uh, prison guards, um, anyone that works in enforcement. I mean, literally, the very first police force, the Northwest Mounted Police, which became the RCMP, were actively engaged in the sexual exploitation and extortion from Indigenous women and girls because they collaborated with Indian agents and used food rations to literally starve communities in order to have access to women to uh, sexually assault. I mean, if this is how police forces were set up in this country, is it any surprise that they're still engaged in that? And that's just not from my word. You only need to read the National Inquiry, to read reports from Amnesty International, the Human Rights Watch. I mean, we all know this is happening, but no one lifts a finger to stop it in government. Just during the COVID pandemic alone, how many Black and Indigenous peoples have been brutalized, shot or incarcerated at a time when we're out less, we're, we're engaged in social distancing. And, it, and like I said, this isn't just the RCMP, this legacy of violence and racism and exploitation, suppression and dispossession, you can find that anywhere. I mean, one of the worst police forces for Indigenous peoples is the Winnipeg police force. They're notoriously racist and violent. And just during the pandemic managed to kill three native people within a span of 10 days. No accountability. And that's part of the problem because this isn't news. It's, it's data, it's facts, it's statistics. It results in our protests, it results in our resistance, it re results in our calls for actions, but governments and police forces tend to try to weather the storm. If they're not engaged in copaganda, trying to go out in the community and get pictures taken with young children who are crying because they're so terrified of the police or saying, you know, how they rescued a cat from a tree the other day. Um, they're certainly not addressing any of the violence that they're engaged in. And that makes all of them culpable. And that's a really difficult message. That's a legacy that we need to deal with. All of them are culpable when they know or ought to have known what their colleagues were doing, what they were engaged in, and when they engage in what's known as the blue wall of silence or the blue code of silence, which is a well, well-documented phenomenon within police and law enforcement where they do not testify against one another. They refuse to hand over notes and testify and speak, and more than that, even the RCMP in investigating itself found hundreds of its own officers lying, committing perjury in court, trying to subvert legal processes, uh, planting false evidence. Does this start to sound like Toronto too? Yeah, we've got the same thing going on in Toronto. This is not just about the RCMP, it's about all of them. And we cannot plead innocence anymore. We cannot plead ignorance anymore. The reason why we haven't acted isn't because people don't know or shouldn't have known. Can Canadians are among the most privileged when you compare worldwide in terms of education, access to the internet, access to libraries, access to the media. 
So the majority of Canadians, not those that are uh, marginalized, racialized and impoverished and oppressed and suppressed, but I'm talking about the majority of Canadians have always had access to this information. I mean, there's literally media swarms around all of the public inquiries, commissions and reports. I mean, I could spend an, another hour just going through each of them. But the Donald Marshall Inquiry, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba, the Aboriginal Justice Commission of Saskatchewan, the Neil Stone Child Inquiry, the Ipperwash Inquiry. I mean, literally, it goes on and on and on. And what's the common theme in all of these? Racism against Native peoples is widespread in this country at the cop level, at the prison level, at the justice system level, all of it. It's infected with racism that commits horrendous human rights against, abuses against our people, and it's not addressed. I mean, literally, it was 25 years ago that the OPP shot and killed unarmed and peaceful land defender Dudley George. And what's happening today? It's taken 25 years just to try to address the land issue. Meanwhile, over in Haudenosaunee territory at 1492 Land Back Lane, they are quietly arresting uh, peaceful land defenders, occupiers, journalists, you know, committing, you know, grave breaches of constitutional rights to free press, the right to protest, and land rights. Nothing has changed. We, you know, we get Commission after commission after commission. I mean, we have a national inquiry into murdered and missing that says Canada is committing genocide in all these ways. And we have to act on this urgently. And they don't. And they won't unless we force them to. And that's part of the problem. People who have power, this kind of corrupt, race-based, violent power, will never cede or surrender that power unless forced to. But the real power is in the people, the people to protect one another, the people to protect the planet and uh, based on human rights and social justice and all of these values that we care about. This isn't just about what impacts us as individuals. That's why you see Native people standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. That's why you see Black Lives Matter standing in solidarity with us. That's why you see so many social justice groups, whether it's anti-poverty, anti-homelessness, um, anti-racism, all working together because it's about our common humanity. And in case you think that maybe this is just an exaggeration about the police legacy in this territory, well, you only need to look at the RCMP class actions against themselves. So the RCMP, the police as an institution, is as horrendous a place to work as it is to be uh, engaged in the public. I mean, you've got a two, uh, 2017 Merlot-Davidson class action for sexual harassment and assault of thousands of female RCMP officers. And then one two years later, the Tiller, Copland and Roach class action, which is for all the non-RCMP women officers that were also sexually harassed and abused. Um, you've got the, now a billion dollar class action against the RCMP for harassment, bullying and toxic workplace by uh, everybody else. You've got a $600 million lawsuit against the RCMP for racism and brutality against indigenous peoples in the North, a half a billion dollar lawsuit by murdered and missing indigenous women and, and girls families in BC for all of their failures. And it just doesn't stop. And here's the thing. 
Let's just say all of these cases get settled. You know who pays for that? The very people who suffer this brutality, sexualized violence and killings by RCMP officers. We pay for that. Every single cent that we pay in taxes or every single cent that doesn't go to our housing and education and healthcare goes directly in the billions to these police officers. And they don't pay a cent for any of these things. They can literally kill with practically 100% impunity. They don't even have to pay insurance on themselves. So we need to really look at where our money is going, where it's not going, and demand that it be withdrawn. No more funding racism, no more funding violence, no more funding the institutions that wreak racism and violence on Black and Indigenous peoples. We have to stop. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. It's ludicrous that we are paying for our own oppression. We are paying the price for these police officers to be on leave for as long as 10 years making six-figure salaries. And we are paying for all of their lawyers as well. But do you see any paid leave for the victims of their brutality or sexualized violence? Do you see anyone paying for lawyers to represent these victims? No. So police officers will never be held accountable unless we stop paying for their impunity. This, this is a serious issue. This is an issue that pays that impacts all Canadians. This isn't just about Black and Indigenous peoples being brutalized. Canadians, you're paying for it. And when you pay for it, you're engaging in it and you're benefiting from it, whether you intend it or not. Once you know better, you're now obligated to do better. You need to withdraw your funds and your support in every way possible and use all of your corresponding influence, what wealth you have, your education, to take actual steps to make it stop. Because we know they will fight and they will fight unfairly. And how do I know this? Because the RCMP, for example, did an investigation into their own officers, about hundreds of them to engage in corrupt actions not unlike the Toronto police or many other police forces. So we know they won't play fair. So we need to play fair. We need to do everything possible based on a human rights framework to make all of these changes. Because if we don't, then we have to live with the worst statistics. And I don't want any of my brothers and sisters to be statistics anymore, but the statistics are important. The CBC did an investigation into, you know, over a 17 year period over killings of police, like police killings of Canadians. And they found that Indigenous peoples by far, although they only represented three to four percent of the population over that time period, represented 16 percent of killings by all police forces in Canada. But in places like Manitoba, 58% of the killings, and tell me that's not racially targeted. In Saskatchewan, 63% of the killings are Indigenous peoples. And there are very specific forces that are deadly, like the RCMP or the Winnipeg Police Force, which has the highest number, 64% of their killings are Indigenous peoples. But it's not just the CBC. Globe and Mail also reported that over just a 10-year period, 
Native peoples represented 36% of all of those killed by the RCMP, but their experts warned that it's likely a lot higher than that because the RCMP uh, avoids tracking race. So we know the numbers are higher, just like it is with the murder to missing Indigenous women and girls. And they also noted that none of the officers were charged in these deaths. And it makes you wonder, well, what about all of these oversight committees? Well, there was another investigation by the media that looked at all of these police oversight committees. And no shock to us, but it might be to Canadians, that the vast majority of those who sit on these supposed civilian police oversight committees are white male former police officers. It is no wonder that we don't get any justice. They take a good idea that many social justice advocates actually advocated for and said, we need this. And then they turned that around and uh, absorbed all of the power to make sure that they were insulated. And this is just one of many, 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 many instances where recommendations have been turned to use against us, kind of like body cams in the United States, police forces have said, sure, we'll wear body cams. They don't turn them on, or it'll cost you tens of thousands of dollars to access the footage, making it prohibitive, or you can't access it at all due to their privacy laws. So they will always find a way around our recommendations, unless our recommendations are, you don't exist anymore. We simply abolish the police. And then there's no way to work around that. And for anyone who just has any remaining thoughts that the RCMP or any other police force is not systemically racist, that it's really just these few bad apples, the APTN did a massive investigation into literally thousands of police officers that have private chats on Facebook. And they found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of blatantly racist remarks against Native peoples of which I won't reproduce here, and even celebrating and saying that the Native people who got killed by the police deserved it. So we need to move beyond whether or not there's racism and look for actions. And abolition is the way to go because we know the political will isn't there to deal with it. So we need to start pushing on many of, of the recommendations being made around the whole defund the police abolition movement. And you know, I will close uh, for question. I'll, you know, we'll I'll answer questions now. But I'll just close by saying, you know, we we've got to deal with both. How do we deal with these police's institutions going forward and on an interim basis? And how do we hold them accountable for everything that they've done to date? And so the United, I support many of the United Nations recommendations around opening the books. They have no more privilege, getting rid of legal immunity, making them pay for all of their own abuses and literally cleaning house. Zero tolerance on all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. Racism, sexualized violence, all of it. And I think if we did that, I think if we defunded racism in policing and in state institutions, you would see they didn't exist anymore. You might have a handful that are left. You might have a few good apples that are left who could actually engage in some other activity that supports and protects communities. So that's where I stand. 
Uh, please check out the rest of these videos and writings and websites of all these amazing and incredible uh, social justice activists from the Black community, Indigenous community, racialized and other allied communities who are putting forth really good, really well thought out ideas. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you, Pam. Pam, I just want to say, uh, just kind of uh, tie a couple things um, that um, this was an excellent, an excellent um, teaching. Thank you. Um, I, uh, a couple of things um, that stood out as you were talking to me, as you were talking and I was listening, um, is the, the, the whole aspect of um, the way in which policing an RCMP as, as an, a black activist doing um, uh, work in policing and, and, and anti-black policing by, uh, violence. Um, you know, the way that the institution itself um, was created for the purposes of surveillance and control of indigenous mm. people and black people. And I think that's a really critical piece because all of the practices it is about, is about um, violence towards indigenous and black people. So the institutions could never, ever, ever do us justice. We could never expect justice from the institutions. And the, you know, the, um, the oversight bodies, you know, the oversight bodies that exist, like you mentioned in terms of uh, bodies uh, that, that all, of the, all of the commissions that have come up to deal with indigenous um, uh, murders, and missing women, all of these things are really facilitated by those who want to uphold the institution mm. as opposed to those who want to give, to provide justice and to hold the institution accountable. And I like, um, uh, you didn't actually say it, but it was in your, uh, it was in your, 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 in your conversation, uh, is that you're actually talking about declassifying you know, information within the institution uh, so that you can deconstruct and defund and, and abolish. So I thought those were really, really crit critical pieces that were pulled out. So I just wanted to to wrap, to, to hold that and, and whether you wanted to add anything else to that before anybody else, um, any, any, more, any questions come to you. Well, um, thank you for that. That's so true. I mean, if I, if I had more time, I'd get into the details and the nuts and bolts of, you know, how access to information is the critical way that we can hold people to account. So if we knew every single police officer who's ever had a sexual uh, assault uh, complaint against them in this country and we had a zero tolerance policy, we could literally, they could all be gone. But now you can't even fire a police officer. They go on paid leave. They, they're never held accountable. And then these oversight bodies, you know, if they even look at that issue, um, it, it tends to clear them. And, you know, I'll just also say that, you know, people say, where do we start with if we start abolishing the police? Well, I say we could abolish the RCMP within the next three months, the entire institution. And you know why? Because Canada already has a military. It doesn't need a militarized private national force. And there's police officers all across the country, which we already have to deal with. So let's just use the RCMP as our pilot project and get rid of them. And then we will, you know, use all of the data from that to find ways to get rid of the rest of the police forces. But I say, let's start with the RCMP. Okay. Okay. Here's a question. Um, what does action look like for allies? 
you mentioned lack of faith in politics. What other steps could be effective? Oh, my goodness. So many things from the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, from an ally perspective, and this is the question we get all the time. What is it that we can do? So everybody has an obligation to self-educate on all of these issues. No more willful or convenient blindness. Um, We you need to be intentional to learn all of these things. And like I said, if this is your first time here and you learn about this, don't just take it from me. There's a whole bunch of other uh, teach-ins from this scholar strike. And notice that, you know, these are academics coming together. Um, tons of experts and people who've done research on all of these issues and many other people that work in this field saying, here's what we know and here's what you need to do about it. So self-education is the most important. It's also a key part of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. And then number two, figure out your your area of action. So let's just say you've always been an organizer. You can help organize. Let's just say you have some resources you can donate to um, these actions or legal funds like 1492 Land Back Lane. Um, Let's just say you you work in communications and you can volunteer some time to helping uh, do communications. Or if you're a website builder, you know, help build and, and populate these websites to help educate people things that we're not going to get in the media so there's lots of ways you just have to find your own way but what I counsel everyone to do is don't without going through your self-learning process and getting the basics approach organizations and say what can I do because that's you know you need to come into this relationship having taken the steps of learning and then figuring out what you have to offer and saying, hey, I have this to offer. Does that fit in? Can I take some of the load off of you? Because I know personally for me, uh, even at Ryerson, um, you know, we're trying to hold Ryerson to account on Indigenous issues. There is nothing that makes me happier than one of my non-Indigenous colleagues says, hey, you know what? Can I do the background research on this for you to lighten your load and we'll work on this together? That's great. That's not usurping power. That's a respectful relationship that helps, you know, lessen the burden. Because to be honest, the people that are engaged in this, we're engaged in this full force. So, I mean, those would be my basic kind of steps, especially if you're just getting into it. Okay. Another question. What are the steps we can take to create community-informed budgets and ensure resources are allocated based on community needs, dreams, once the police are defunded? Yeah, so I mean, any questions around finances necessarily brings into how our economic system works. And so one of the things I would caution is there's lots of different recommendations going out there about how to reallocate resources or how to approach, you know, municipal institutions and all of that stuff. But no matter what formula is put forward or even accepted, there can be no justice on stolen native lands. So we have to be careful that while improving conditions for one group doesn't further marginalize another. And we all know that in Canada and the US and in many other countries, we're on stolen indigenous lands, stolen resources. And these these lands and resources are literally what the basis of this economy. So I think while we're looking at how to make sure we're um, funding, you know, education and healthcare and family supports and community supports that at the exact same time, we're also transferring resources back, transferring power and transferring land back 
to native peoples, that these two things go hand in hand. Great. How is it that people in Canada still do not see this country as a settler state? Um, I mean, I think that's the question. I think the person wants to know why people are so resistant to acknowledging that this is a settler colonial society. The natural human inclination to be an exception. Well, I know this is bad, but I'm the good one. Or I know that this happened, but I'm the exception. I, I didn't do it. Like, you know, it's, and it's part of the philosophy, like Western ideology is very individual. It's mm-hmm. about individual rights, individual benefits, individuals working hard, individuals succeeding, and really not looking around to community. Now, thankfully, I don't think many Canadians think that way. I mean, we care very much um, about our families and our larger community circle and for Native people, you know, our nations as well. Um, so I think that's that's reactionary. Sometimes when you hear something that's disturbing or upsetting or unsettling because you've never heard it before, you want to say, but that's not me. And without realizing that every single person on this territory as a settler, whether they settled here 300 years ago or whether they settled here, you know, three days ago, benefits from the ongoing genocide, dispossession and oppression of Indigenous peoples, but also the ongoing racism, violence and dispossession of Black peoples and Black communities mm-hmm. and the exploitation of their labor and their bodies. And so um, there's no one sitting here on this continent now that can feign innocence. And we're all trapped in this system that's been designed with no outs. Yeah. And so what we're doing is we're going to bust through, disrupt it, and say, no, status quo, you're not going to keep us trapped here forever. We're going to create outs. But that means all of us have to accept responsibility. But at the same time, I don't want people to worry because we all know that there are people in society who hold really racist values, or they're very misogynist, or they support violence, or they support white supremacy. There are smaller groups of society. But We don't need everybody. We don't need 100% of Canadians to embark on this people's movement, on this revolution. Every single revolution in in the history of the planet that's ever changed humankind or advanced human rights or social justice or earth justice has started with a small number of people who use their power to inspire others to join. And, And that kind of power can literally topple governments. So if you can topple governments in other countries, we can topple white supremacy and systemic violence and racism in this country with our people power, whether or not we have 100% of the people or not. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to add, because um, that, um, before we close, uh, and that's key. I, I think, you know, when we think about what's happening in this current context, we're really seeing a, 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 a huge backlash, especially at this particular time of the uh, sort of nexus of the pandemic, uh, the, uh, you know, the particular climate in the U.S. uh, with Trump and his administration and how that is feeding into a global, you know, white supremacist fascist state, how there is this lack of unwillingness to accept uh, such histories in this country of settler colonialism and slavery, uh, 
And we have, you know, the, the, the head of the conservative government uh, standing up there and saying, we need to take back Canada. Well, what the fuck does that mean? Right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I think it's really important, the point that you make in terms of, you know, yeah, but we really need to, to remind people that, yeah, this is a settler colonial state. Mm -hmm. Also, a state, a, a nation founded on the bodies, on um, the genocide of indigenous people, and on the backs of blacks. In terms of, you know, um, you know, um, in terms of also enslaved labor. So, you know, and how we, so, and and it's important because those histories we're seeing that there's a, in a sense that there, there that there's a rush to want to bury uh, those histories and to pretend like that no longer matters when it does matter. Exactly. And, you know, I'm so glad that you raised it, even though we don't have that much time left, um, you know, about what people think is this rise in, you know, white hatred, white nationalism and all of this stuff. It's, it was always there. I mean, this is a country based on it. But what happens is when people in power emulate those hatred ideologies, it helps encourage and inflame others to do that. But here's what I would tell people, you know, because it is worrying and we need to keep an eye on it, that it's a choice how we respond to that. And my choice in, in, in how to respond to white hate groups or white nationalism is we need to channel our energy where it's most effective. So I say we starve white hate groups and we feed hopeful social justice groups. And that means in every context. So for every second and every ounce of our energy, are we going to spend that fighting with uh, racist people on Twitter and spend hours getting into Twitter debates? Or are we going to take those hours and write a critical piece that we can promote on Twitter or lift the voice of someone else? Because we have the power as the people to silence those voices. We just don't retweet them. We don't repost them. We don't talk about them. We literally silence them and make sure our voices are front and center. So I say we just make that conscious choice to starve hatred and feed hope. Thank you, Dr. Palmetto. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question. Sorry, we couldn't get to all of them. Um, and I want to thank um, our tech team, Carrot, uh, Rajan, Arthur, Alana. Uh, thank you all for making this happen. And again, Pam Palmerta, thank you so much. Thank you all for sending me your requests and for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast. I really appreciate all your support and all the actions that you take to help us address social justice and earth justice issues. I'm also happy to report that my new book, Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence, is finally out. You can buy it direct from the publisher, Fernwood Publishing, at independent bookstores, or online at the usual places like Chapters and Amazon. I'll make sure to leave links in the description box. Thanks again for listening. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.